It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. As of today, March 3rd, more than 100 cases of the novel coronavirus have been detected in the United States, and nine people have died. Globally, the illness from the virus, also known as COVID-19, has killed more than 3,000 people. Nancy Massonier is the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the CDC. The U.S. government has been working on planning for pandemics of influenza for years. We have those operations in place. We, with our state health department partners, need to start operationalizing that so we're ready if this does spread. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Public Health Grand Rounds, held by the Aspen Institute's Health, Medicine, and Society program. The U.S. government has put restrictions around travel in an effort to stem the introduction of COVID-19 and slow its spread. Cases of the illness have arrived, so the CDC's Nancy Massonier says health organizations are getting ready. People like responding. They don't like preparing, right? It doesn't get at people as excited. And so shifting gears to make sure that all the hospitals in the U.S. and all the healthcare industry are preparing is not easy, and that's really where we're starting to work through all the professional organizations. There have been early blunders. The New York Times reports restrictive rules for administering diagnostic kits, some of which were defective, contributed to the early spread of the coronavirus. Nancy Massonier sits down with Rob Klain and Anthony Fauci to talk about the situation. Klain was the White House Ebola Response Coordinator, and Fauci leads the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Their conversation is led by Helen Branswell, the infectious disease and public health reporter for Stat News. Their talk was held February 11th. Here's Branswell. We've been hearing from WHO that uh, most of the cases are mild. They, they've Based on the data that they've seen from China, they estimate that about 82% of cases are mild. Uh, 15% of cases are severe, and 3% require ICU care. But those, you know, definitions are very vague to me. Can you give me a sense of what you know in terms of how mild is mild and how severe is severe, and what are we seeing in the cases that have landed in the United States? What we know is that the disease clearly can be really severe. We know that because there have been a thousand deaths. We know that the more severe disease is in people who are older and people with underlying illnesses. What we don't fully know is the full spectrum of illness. Now, it's common in outbreaks like this that the people who come to light first have more severe disease. And so frequently in the early stages of an epidemic, we actually can overestimate the severity because we're seeing that end of the spectrum. And we have to remember that you know, this is a disease that we didn't know before six weeks ago. So I would be cautious in over-calculating case fatality rate based on the cases we know, but also that early on in the um, outbreak, at least some part of the case definition in China required pneumonia. So what we also don't know on top of everything else is how much mild disease there is. How would we figure that out? Well, we could do surveillance, but the mild disease might look like all the other mild respiratory diseases that we see with fever or not, a little bit of a cough. What we would really probably want to do is a serological study where we take people's blood, see if they have antibodies, and then work backward to figure out their symptoms. That's generally how we figure out spectrum of illness. 
Finally, I would say, you know, it's important for us among the 13 cases in the United States, there has been some spectrum of illness. A few of those cases were a little sicker, they required oxygen. But in general, all the patients in the U.S. have been, you know, pretty well, haven't required tons of excessive care. And actually, right now, they're actually all improving. And so based on the U.S. experience and based on the experience of other countries outside of China, you know, a lot of these patients seem to be doing okay. Before sure we move that. off that, can I just ask you, in terms of the U.S. cases, did they all have a pneumonia or no? They didn't all have chest X-ray confirmed pneumonia. Um, in the U.S., we've been very aggressive at looking for cases, as you would expect us to be when we have an outbreak that is coming into the U.S. And so we've used a relatively low bar of patients who had traveled, especially to Wuhan, with some kind of respiratory symptom to start looking. And what that means is that we've picked up patients who weren't as ill as well. If we hadn't been looking so hard, we might not have found them. Dr. Fetchy, you've been quite public about wanting more information out of China. What would you like to get your hands on? Well, I think it relates to a number of things, but one of the things that Nancy just mentioned is that we really need to know the scope of this. I mean, there, uh, Nancy very cautiously gave you the facts about it, but I think it's pretty clear that when you have something like this and the ease of transmissibility, it is highly likely, but we don't know, but highly likely that the number of cases of people who are minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic are much, much, much greater than the group that we see who present to a healthcare provider because of the surveillance of what they're doing and because of, of the fact that, as Nancy said correctly, that people with disease tend to come to a healthcare provider. So if we knew a few things, A, what the extent of disease is, what the degree of asymptomatic inf infection and what the degree of asymptomatic transmission is. Mm -hmm. In general, when you have respiratory diseases or other diseases like that, that asymptomatic transmission is generally not the major driver of an outbreak. It can contribute to variable degrees, mm -hmm. but it isn't the major driver. But it does inform policy right. of when you're going to be screening and when you're going to be diagnosing. You know what? I, I, I often use the, the, the comparison, even though you've got to be careful about comparisons uh, because people tend to think they're similar, they're not. But when you have a disease like Ebola in which transmission is really only by direct contact with an obviously sick person, that really gives you a real good feel for what the potential for spread is. When you have a situation where someone could be minimally or asymptomatic and spread, that has a real impact on how you make certain policy decisions. So those are the things that all of us have really been wanting to know, uh, as opposed to numbers that are given to you in a press conference, as opposed to numbers that you could actually look at the data. And that's the problem. Right. So one of the things that um, is informed by uh, knowing when people spread disease is whether tools like quarantine and isolation are useful in controlling them. If people start to disseminate virus and before they even know they're sick, it's much harder to control a disease. Ron, give us some thoughts about, you know, you were the Ebola czar, you, you had uh, lots of experience with trying to contain 
or the plan to contain. How do you think things are going now in terms of preparations within the United States to prepare the United States? Well, look, I think that uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So I think that, um, you know, one of the key touchstones of what we did during the Ebola response in 2014, 2015 was to let science and expertise drive the response and not let politics drive the response. And I think when you look at uh, some, of the, some of the travel restrictions that have been put in place by the administration right now, it's very hard for me to see what the scientific basis is. Mm -hmm. Obviously, having fewer people come here uh, means less introduction of the disease. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But the policy that's been put in place right now restricts people based on the color of their passports. Uh, if you have a blue passport, you're allowed to come. If you have another color passport, you're not allowed to come. I don't think there's a lot of science behind the color of someone's passport being a determinant about whether or not they're allowed entry into the United States. Okay. So I think we need to, uh, so I think one, we need to think hard about this travel policy and is it really science-based or what's the basis behind the policy? And then secondly, I think it's super important for public officials not to, to, to take their credibility very seriously in a situation like this. So if you tell people, well, we, we, we've got a travel ban, no one's coming here, we've got this locked down, then you ought to have a travel ban and have it coming here and have it locked down, and, and we don't. So under the current travel policy, in addition to this oddity of banning foreign nationals but not other people, you know, every day we have planes and ships arrive in this country with Chinese crews. That's a vital part of commerce, a vital part of trade. I understand why. I'm not saying we should ban that. But, but we shouldn't pretend like we, we've got some kind of travel ban or whatever we're pretending like it is if we don't. Um, and so, I, you know, I think I think that's a, a real challenge here. I think this is a really important point, which is that, you know, it's really important for everyone to understand what the point of restricting travel was. And, um, you know, the idea was not that we could hermetically seal the United States against this disease. We know that that's just impossible in general. And as Dr. Fauci said, if the disease is transmittable by people who are asymptomatic or even just mildly symptomatic, it makes it really clear that we're not going to be able to keep it from spreading in the US. The idea was if we could slow it down because we felt like it was just moving so rapidly through China that we had a window of opportunity that by acting, perhaps we could slow it down. But that window of opportunity that we bought ourselves, we need to use. And we need to use it to prepare for the potential for us having a a worse pandemic. So this really isn't a let's stop it and then we're done. It's a if we could pause it a little bit, we'd buy ourselves some time to work on the rest of our pandemic planning. The US government has been working on planning for pandemics of influenza for years. We have those operations in place. We, with our state health department partners, need to start operationalizing that so we're ready if this does spread. Before I want to go into that a little bit more, but I wanted to ask Ron something else before we move off that. As somebody who was in the White House during an emergency, who knows about how policy decisions are made, I've been wondering about how hard it is not to do something. You know, the science would suggest that trying to stop the virus from coming here by quarantining people coming off planes or, or diverting planes or taking temperatures as people get off planes from China is probably not, it, it's not a net that's mm. going to catch all the cases. But it seems to me that it's very difficult when you're in a position of authority, if you're in government, to do nothing. 
Is it, well, would well, it have been harder to say, we're going to wait, we know it's coming, and yeah. we need to take the time that we have and use the resources that we have to start shoring up our, our hospitals, to start stockpiling uh, masks or respirators, to, to do those kinds of things? I mean, the public does expect action at a point, do they not? They, they expect action, they should get action. Uh, I guess my That's point would be that um, the action should be science-based and medically-based. And while I certainly agree with Dr. Messonnet that reducing the number of people coming here slows the introduction, slows the spread of the disease here, reducing them based solely on the color of their passport, it just, I think, is, is not really a defensible policy. Um, we also know that quarantines are a double-edged sword, right? We're seeing this on this cruise ship off the coast of Japan right now, where quarantining all these people in a relatively small space is leading to this cruise ship being the second largest country in the world for coronavirus right now, right. behind only China. So, you know, th these quarantines do have kind of complex uh, effects. I, look, I think, obviously, the administration can't do nothing. Indeed, they are far from doing nothing. That's not my point or not my recommendation. The point is, I think you got to be really careful about what you do. You got to base it on science and medical expertise. And then you got to be candid with the American people about what you're doing and what kind of effect it's going to have. And you can't tell people we button up the country airtight when, when, when you haven't and you can't, right? I mean, we live in a connected world. The idea that no one is going to come to this country from the world's largest nation is just an impossibility. It, it just is. Without radical dislocation of our economy without, by the way, you know, uh, as two doctors know better than you, so much of our medical system relies on daily imports from China for drugs, for the PPE we're going to use to protect our people. So, you know, people and goods are coming here from China all the time. That's a reality. And we just need to be candid with the American people about that reality. Dr. Fauci wants in. No, I mean, it's, <clears throat> the decision was not made lightly to have a travel ban. But um, when you're talking about travel bans, I, I totally agree with Ron that you're never going to exclude everybody who could be a risk from getting into the country. But as Nancy said, what we were trying to do was to buy, and you said it very well, Helen, was to buy time. When, when you think of travel bans in infectious diseases, going back for the now, 30 plus years that I've been involved in this, I have been one of the vocal people against travel bans for the simple reason that if you're trying to keep people out of the country during an outbreak, you will never ever succeed in stopping it. The only thing you would do is delay it. Because if you put a travel ban here and then it spreads here, here and there, people are gonna ultimately come in. My first argument with that was an interesting argument that I think is important. When I argued very uh, strongly against not allowing HIV infected people in the country, because we already had so many HIV infected people in the country, what sense would it make to say, you can't come in from Africa or from England or from Australia? So the purpose was that it is not going to be a perfect, there's going to be leakage. By leakage, we mean people are going to be able to get in. But if we could just slow down the importation, particularly from the epicenter 
of the outbreak. You're not gonna get every Chinese person in a port who's coming in. But Wuhan was the overwhelming epicenter. And the idea was to not let those people come in because as you know, all of our cases except for two have been travel related. Then the question is about what about the rest of China? Can we screen? And the discussion that we had on the phone and in skiffs was, well, wait a minute. If you have an average of 22,000 Chinese coming into the country every single day, can we effectively and accurately tell the American people that in fact, you're okay uh, because it's not. <laughs> so we thought that just for a very temporary period of time, if we have an outbreak that in, involves the rest of the world and we get trans, transmission of infection in a sustained manner in this country, then any travel ban makes absolutely no sense. Because why would you want to prevent people from coming in when you already have it? So again, a little bit more of a long-winded way of saying what Nancy was saying, what the principles that Ron said are correct. But what Nancy was saying, what I'm saying, is that we just wanted to buy that window of, of, of time to be able to prepare better. That, that was the reason. And how is that going, <clears throat> Dr. Massonier? I mean, are, are the hospital, is the hospital sector really gearing up? Um, are manufacturers gearing up if they can? Uh, and, and to the point that Ron made earlier about so many goods coming from China, do we have reports yet of drug shortages that might trace back to, um, you know, limits in movement at this point? Yeah, so I think this is really the point, which is that people like responding. They don't like preparing, right? It doesn't get at people as excited. And so shifting gears to make sure that all the hospitals in the U.S. and all the healthcare industry are preparing is not easy. And that's really where we're starting to work through all the professional organizations and all our connectivity with the healthcare industry and all the other sectors. And if you look on CDC's website, you'll see a whole series of guidances for all of those sectors about everything from what to do about infection control, but also about what to do about PPE. As an example, you know, masks are incredibly important to the healthcare industry. You obviously want to make sure that your healthcare provider is willing to treat you, and of course, they expect to be safely protected. We need to make sure that we're not misusing masks now so that if we need them later for the healthcare sector as a priority that we have them. And so we are now starting to have all of those conversations about the general sense of preparedness, both from CDC, but frankly, a lot of the work's going on at the state and local health departments where they're working directly with their hospitals and all the other sectors that you'd expect to get ready for something. Yeah, if I could just build on that, two points I'd make. I think one thing Nancy said I want to underscore here, which is uh, we love responses, we hate preparations. And so, you know, one thing about this is everything about this, though unknown, was absolutely inevitable. And the question is, what have we been doing up until now to be ready for this event? And so, uh, you know, and, and we've seen this uh, over the course of the past 20 years. We had the anthrax. Uh, attacks here in 2001. Congress poured a bunch of money for a couple years into kind of getting ready for this kind of thing, and then it kind of died out. And then with Ebola, you know, big fear in the United States, big uh, concern about it. Congress gave us $5 billion to do a bunch of things, and then over the years since then, it's kind of like died out. Now the focus is back on this. So one thing I'd say is 
We're here at the Aspen Institute, you know, people focused on public policy. The single best public policy thing we could do would be to have a sustained, consistent set of investments in the kind of preparations that Nancy's talking about and not have this kind of boom and bust cycle. Every time something's in the news, we go crazy, make a bunch of investments, and then we kind of forget about it. Now, here's a good example of that. So back in 2014, uh, when the Ebola, we first had the first case of Ebola in the United States, we had three hospitals in America. One, one Tony at NIH uh, treated a, a patient. You know, three places, Nebraska, Atlanta, at Emory, and out at NIH that could really treat someone like that. And we made a lot of investments. We built a network of what we called Ebola and Special Pathogen Hospitals, ultimately 60 hospitals that had the training, the equipment, the personnel to kind of deal with that kind of risk. Now, before this coronavirus thing, the funding that was supposed to expire in May of this year, right? And now hopefully Congress will, you know, like read the newspaper and renew that. But, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the point here is that I think that uh, I 1,000% I agree with what Nancy said. We, we, obviously, when you have something like this, you have to respond. But the most important thing we need to do from a policy perspective is to be consistently preparing, consistently investing, consistently getting ready, because whatever happens with this virus, you know, we'll be back here next year with another one, or the year after that, or the year after that. And so that's the only sure thing and the only sure answer. Amen. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. A liberal democracy not only needs to deliver peace and prosperity, but also human dignity. Stanford professor Francis Fukuyama says today, people are looking for dignity in the wrong places. Gender, religion, ethnicity, and nationality are providing a sense of identity. We should be finding identity and dignity in a shared sense of humanity. Dignity takes many forms. In the United States, we have a declaration of independence that says all men are created equal. But we live in a society that does not actually treat uh, individuals with equal respect. He says marginalized people often feel a sense of indignity. Find the episode, What Does Dignity Have to Do with Liberal Democracy? in the Aspen Ideas to Go archive. You can locate the show in your favorite podcast player. Let's return to today's show. Here's Helen Branswell. In terms of the efforts that are being taken both in the United States and uh, further afield, especially in China, to try to slow the spread, I'm wondering how sustainable you think it is? How long can that go on? I mean, Singapore, which has had quite a few cases, 47, I think, as of yesterday, um, they're already starting to say that they think they have community spread, meaning they can't find... They can't trace all their cases back to somebody who was in China. They think that there is some transmission within Singapore. And the prime minister, in a very extraordinary um, uh, address that was posted on Facebook, said there may come a time soon where they stop trying to trace so aggressively because they realize effectively it's out of the box. Um, you know, at what point... Is it time to say, let's use our resources elsewhere? When you say elsewhere, elsewhere about not containing but mitigating. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. You know, I think when you get a degree of significant, what we call sustained mm -hmm. transmission from person to person to person, multiple generations of infection, 
then you really, I mean, there's limited resources. Then it doesn't make any sense to put a lot of your resources into preventing outside in and look at both containment but mitigation. Namely, how are you going to deal with an outbreak that you already have as opposed to putting the majority of the resources on preventing an outbreak from coming to you? And I think that's what the, the, the leader in Singapore was saying. In fact, we have the same sort of, 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 uh, of strategy that will be, where hopefully we never have to put a full mitigation because we don't want to have that sustained transmission from person to person. But it would be unrealistic of us to assume it definitely is not going to happen. And that's the, the, the message that is very fine line sensitive to let the American people know that at present, given everything that's going on, the risk is really relatively low. But at the same time that the risk is low, that the possibility of this happening is a real possibility. And that's the reason why we've got to address it. Maybe Explain to me why the risk is low, somebody, because to me, when yeah, I look okay. at this, this virus spreading, it's spreading very uh, I, efi efficiently. Sure. And I can't see why, like, there's no force field around China. Right. It's not going right. to stop there. Again, it's the message. When you say the long-range, low-risk, right now, should they be frightened about what's going on? Right now, we have 13 people. They're in identification, isolation, and contact tracing. Is there a risk that this is going to turn into a global pandemic? Absolutely, yes. There is. Yeah. There is. The thing to think about in the U.S. is there's only so much worrying that you can do every day, right? <laughs> there are 13 cases in the United States. That's 11 of them had direct contact from Wuhan, which is the epicenter of the outbreak. And the other two were close personal contacts of one of those cases. We've been, with the health departments, aggressive in looking for spread around these cases as part of a containment strategy. So looking way more than we w normally might at a disease like this to see if anybody in the close, medium, outside circles around each of these cases has symptoms, if they have carriers of this um, pathogen, and we haven't found it. And so that's why we say right now the risk in the U.S. is low because we don't see any signs of community <clears throat> spread today. Right. But our preparations are because we think there is the possibility right. of a risk. Right. And I would also say that part of the thing that's different about this disease for us is that in the short term this year, we don't have specific mitigation strategies. Despite all the work, we probably won't have a vaccine before a year. We don't have a specific countermeasure. If we're talking about mitigation, what we're going to be talking about is things like social distancing, stay home if you're sick, cover your cough, wash your hands. Those kind of interventions are really difficult to implement in a community. So it's going to be really difficult to move to a mitigation right. strategy because there's not a specific countermeasure that we can deploy. Right. I just wonder if, I mean, I take your point, and I understand that you're sort of between a rock and a hard place in terms of messaging. But I do wonder if, you know, stressing that the risk currently is low, and it is currently low, you're not going to catch this walking down N Street. Um, unless you but, do. Unless you do, <laughs> until you do. Um, but um, 
you know, between that and, and the WHO, uh, you know, continuing to stress that they're trying to uh, contain for the purpose of elimination, meaning, you know, maybe this virus can be made to go away in the way that SARS was in 2003. I wonder if you risk effectively telling people this is not something that's going to, they're going to have to deal with in the, you know, in the future. And I think that you have a very delicate balance sure, to hit do. there. And that's why we always follow at present, the risk is really relatively low. But we are taking this very seriously and the situation could change. That's what the, I mean, if you'd say, wait a minute, you're really, well, what would it be, Helen, if we got up and said, okay, Hi, this is Nancy and I telling you, we're really, really got a big risk of getting completely wiped out and then nothing happens. Then your credibility is gone. So I mean, the way I think about it is they worry so we don't have to. Right. And, and, and I, think that's, I think that's right. But I, but I do think that the challenge we have is this. I, you know, go back to something Nancy said about the lack of therapeutic countermeasures on any kind of reasonable horizon means that if the, if, if this gets worse than it seems like it's going to be, it's going to be inflicted on our healthcare system. And I think the thing we need to understand about that is the complexities of our healthcare system, which I don't need to explain to anyone at the Aspen Institute here. But, but I will say, you know, my, uh, my overwhelming experience with <clears throat> the Ebola czar was that I was the czar of nothing, <laughs> right? Because we don't have a command and control healthcare system in the United States, right? So we have a system that's part public and part private, uh, that is largely state and local based, that uh, you know, most of the troops in Nancy's army are state and local employees when you get right down to it, right? If, if, if you're gonna have a big monitoring program or a big you know, contact tracing program, that's not gonna be even done by the fantastic people CDC, that's gonna fall on state and local government. You know? And if we have hundreds or thousands of people in hospitals, those beds are gonna be provided by private hospitals, public hospitals, state and local hospitals. You know, th these two sit at the top of a federal healthcare system that isn't really a federal healthcare system. That's not what we have in America. And so I think the challenge here is that uh, we, we need to be pulsing that system to get it ready for it in a way that, again, isn't command and control. This isn't like they give orders and all these people go run. And so figuring out how we can uh, and, and, and part of that's also going to require funding. And so I think getting in front of the Congress soon to try to help help these state and local governments that are going to face the burden of dealing with all this work if it gets a little bit worse or a lot worse, and really investing in these hospitals, that's going to be a challenge because the system moves super slowly. CDC, NIH, super fast. They are the best people in our country. We have great experts, great leadership there, right? But But in the end, when someone shows up in a hospital in a small town in the middle of the country, you know, this is a, it's a complicated system to work all that. And so I think getting ahead of that part of it is really, really important because it doesn't move quickly. I had asked you and it got lost in the shuffle. Are there any reports of drug shortages that are related no. to, no, not no. so far? Great. No. So one of the things you've been hearing uh, is that there aren't really currently um, medical countermeasures, things like uh, specific drugs for this coronavirus or a vaccine. And one of the things that trying to slow spread of the virus to the United States and in the United States hopefully does is buy time to produce a vaccine. Dr. Fauci, tell us where things stand. Okay. Uh, 
And, and this is one that almost certainly when people, they want to hear what snippet of what I say they want to hold on to. So we started working on a vaccine. In general, vaccines that are not on an emergent basis take five, six, seven, eight years to get. That's the reason why in an acute situation, you're not going to just pull a vaccine out of your pocket. So what have we done? Not only we at NIH, but there are a number of other companies, investigators, biotech, but we have a pretty good system at the NIH and we have a vaccine research center, which is, I think, representative of what you can expect. So from the time that we got the sequence of the virus, when the Chinese put it on the public database, we immediately took the gene out of the protein that we want to use in the vaccine to be the thing that induces an immune response. We put it in a certain platform called a messenger RNA platform, and we're working on it right now. From the time we got the sequence to the time we're gonna do a phase one trial, which is determined in a human, is it safe, and does it at least begin to induce the kind of response you'd like to see? From the time we got the sequence, we will be in humans unless there's a major glitch, which I don't think there will be. I hope there won't be. Within two and a half months, two and a half months now. However, that's a three month period because three months have gone by. Then it takes about three months to determine if in fact it is safe and it induces. So now you're at six months. So now at least you know you have a product that you can test. Then you do a phase two trial. The phase one is on tens of individuals. The phase two is on hundreds or even thousands of individuals. If we take that product, go to a place where there's an outbreak, i.e. China, and do a trial, it would take at least six months or eight months to know if it works. So now you're already a year and a month or so. If it does work, then you have to be able to scale up to make the tens and hundreds of millions of doses. That amount of time is gonna be as problematic as getting the vaccine itself going. So that's the reason why we say, even though we're going into a trial in three months and we'll have some data in six months, a vaccine as part of the deployable countermeasure is not in the mix for at least a year. So the quickest scenario that I could see is if this really turns out to be bad, which we all hope it won't, that what we do is that when we get to the point of the six months of the end of the phase one, that you proceed what they say in the industry at risk. And proceeding at risk means you invest hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to scale up on something that you hope might work. Get that? So that's the real glitch there. And I think if we start to see the sustained transmission from person to person, we, I am, I know my colleagues are, I know Nancy is and Bob Redfield are gonna be pushing everyone to proceed at risk because then the FDA can do an emergency use authorization to start administering something at the time you actually have it available. I know it's a complicated answer, but that's no, no, the that's truth. A, that, that was the answer, most of the answer I was looking for. Ron, you want to? Can I just quickly add two, two things? So uh, as the policy person here, 
You know, there, there are critical missing pieces of policy here. One <clears throat> is we clearly should have a program that de-risks the at-risk thing that Tony is talking about. We ought to find better ways to do public-private partnerships to try to take some of the risk out of this. We went through this a little bit with Ebola, with the vaccine makers scaling up very, very quickly. A lot of them, to be honest, lost a lot of money on it. I have no brief for the drug companies here. I don't work <clears> for the drug companies. I'm not like a drug company fan. But there's no question that a lot of them lost a lot of money trying to produce an Ebola vaccine. And the, you know, Tony's gonna get on the phone and tell these people to do this on an at-risk basis. And they're, you know, like Tony's extremely persuasive, but these are gonna be hard conversations. And so, and, and so, you know, we, we should be doing something as a, as a public entity to, to take some of that risk down. The second thing is we have a global public policy problem, and that's this. We in America have this way to expeditedly approve vaccines that Tony mentioned. We have the PrEP Act to deal with the liability issues if we go that way, if, if, if that's what happens. But globally, we don't have those tools. And it's quite possible that we could develop this vaccine here. Tony could make his phone calls. We could get it through this regulatory process. And there'd be other countries where the vaccine wouldn't be approved, wouldn't be used, where there'd be issues of liability. The vaccine makers would be unwilling to distribute the vaccine because of fear of liability issues. And this is a, this is a lingering international policy problem mm -hmm. that we need to address. Because the day will come, maybe not on this virus, but the day will come we will have a vaccine quickly made, we will want to use it in other countries, and we'll hit these legal and policy barriers, and lives will be lost. And, you know, that's just, that's something we could fix. Okay. So, Dr. Fauci, I'm, I was glad to hear you lay out the timeline. Um, I think it's still pretty optimistic. I've covered the development of emergency vaccines before for a long time, actually, and it always takes longer. There's always Absolutely. a glitch. And um, the other thing is, so... Dr. Fauci mentioned that the vaccine that the uh, Vaccine Research Center is working on is uses a technology called messenger RNA, uh, which I believe is offers speed in terms of development of the vaccine. And scale up too. Yeah. Okay, yeah, right. but where's the vaccine gonna be made? Because you're partnering, partnering with a biotech and I don't believe they have a production line. So my question is, you could end up with something a year from now that looks really good, where is it going to be made in yeah. the scale that the world right. needs it to be made? That's a very good point, and that's where we're going to have to employ a much larger pharmaceutical company that's willing to do the opportunist, opportunity cost that they're going to lose to get it. And that's the reason why Barter, with the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, which has money to invest in the pharmaceutical industry to take a product that's generally developed right. by researchers. Yes, it is going to be a, a, a challenge to be able to get a major company to do that. And I think for the reason that Ron alluded to, because when we were doing this with Ebola, it was a major vaccine company that got burned. So that right. is a challenge. Yes. yes. Yeah, in fact, <clears throat> that there is now a licensed Ebola vaccine, but that took years and years and yes. years. And the company Merck that brought it to license has no hope of recouping the costs that it put into right. developing that vaccine. Um, and a couple of years ago, I actually wrote a piece. I talked to all of the major producers, and they'd all effectively been burned at least one or two times. You know, Sanofi had tried to make a Zika vaccine, and uh, that didn't pan out. They'd also earlier tried to make a chicken gunya vaccine, I think it was Sanofi, was it not? Right. 
Time and again, the industry is asked to step up and produce emergency vaccines in circumstances like this, and then the emergency passes and people don't think they want the vaccine. It even happened during 2009 uh, flu pandemic, which turned out to be milder than people had feared at the start, and then when the vaccine was ready, people didn't want it. So the vaccine manufacturers have been to this dance before. They go away, you know, having lost money, having given up time that they could have put on other uh, projects. It's a very difficult situation right. for them. Consequently, if you look at who is actually has actually announced that they're going to do anything at this point, only J and J of the major vaccine manufacturers has said that they're going to try to make a coronavirus vaccine. GSK has said that they'll let. Uh, somebody else use their adjuvant, which is a compound that sort of boosts the impact of vaccine, which means you can stretch it out uh, and vaccinate more people. But the other major manufacturers have been silent up until now. Do no. you know anything? Are they no. going to get in? No, and that's the thing that would... It's the issue is the opportunity costs of these uh, organizations. Because if they're going to shift over and make a vaccine for an outbreak that may not necessarily occur. They're not making a vaccine for the things that they're making their money on. And that is very, very difficult to get someone to do. We've tried, we being the federal government, to make investments. You know, we had long conversations about that. I'll just very briefly say it. In other words, if you're gonna get a factory that is not gonna ruin anybody's opportunity, so it's doing nothing but staying warm, ready for you to come in and make your 400 million doses of whatever it is you want to make. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, because the companies that are, have the skill to be able to do it are not going to just sit around and have a warm facility <laughs> yeah. ready to go for when you need it. When you need it, they're going to have to stop making polio vaccine, measles vaccine, hepatitis vaccine. You're right, it's very difficult and very frustrating. So I just raise that because I think we need to be very careful about how many promises people get about how soon vaccine will be ready. I never promise. I never <laughs> promised you a rose garden, Helen. <laughs> okay, great. I'm telling you the timeline. I'm not promising anything, oh. right? Okay, so Dr. Missonier, um, <clears throat> given that you know we've established that the it's going to be a while to vaccine, and as <clears throat> and this virus may end up circulating here, I mean, what do you think, knowing what you know about it so far? What do you what kind of measures do you think CDC would be looking at? I mean, school closures. This doesn't. There don't seem to be a lot of sick kids with that, and this uh, infection and school closures have huge implications on families. I mean, what what would you look at? Yeah, this is um, really difficult from a CDC perspective. A lot of the work that we're doing on this coronavirus rests on the foundation of the planning we've done for influenza. Mm -hmm. So, because of the threat of pandemic influenza we've thought a lot about what we would do in exactly this situation when we were faced with a new respiratory pathogen and we didn't yet have a vaccine. And the kind of things that we're talking about is social distancing that is trying to keep people from transmitting to one another. The school children thing is an interesting question. Um, there are multiple hypotheses for why there haven't been many cases in children. 
But one hypothesis is actually that there has been, but it's mild illness. And it would be unusual for kids in this kind of situation not to be getting sick. So it's possible that we will find that there is illness in children. Children sometimes are the ones who actually seed their household. And so there might be a situation where we would want folks to think about you know, um, keeping kids home from school. What's different now than it was 10 years ago is the availability of teleworking, teleschooling, and telemedicine as ways to keep people from congregating, including in their physician's office. So we're looking at all of those things to come up with how we might operationalize social distancing. The other kind of things that you end up asking are not to have mass gatherings, not to have lots of opportunities for groups of people like this yeah. to be <laughs> passing germs back and forth. And we know that if we do those things, it can work. And it also can buy us more time. Um, when we use mathematical modeling to look at the trajectory of an epidemic, putting in place those kind of social distancing tools keeps it from coming quickly, buys you more time to the eventuality of hopefully eventually a vaccine, and frequently lowers the peak of disease. Because what we also don't want is everyone getting sick at once. It'll overcome the healthcare system. So it's not just about preventing it. It's about trying to scale it and time it so that the healthcare industry can manage the patients that we might see. Best guess what we're looking at here? I mean, one of the problems with this is that, as, as we heard earlier, there, there isn't a really good sense of how much mild disease there is. So when people are talking about 2% of patients seem to be dying, that's obviously going to turn out to be wrong, I think. It's, it's likely that it's, it's a smaller fraction. 2% right. would be a disaster. What do you think we're looking at in terms of case fatality? Would you yeah. even vet, venture, I guess? Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, because you, you don't want something to come out as this is mm. a prediction or whatever. But if you look at the relative mortalities that we have, so... Right now, the mortality, counting just the people who are, who are accessing a healthcare system, is a little bit more than 2%. It was hanging around 2%, it's like 2.2 now, 2.1. Um, SARS was 9 to 10%, but that did not transmit very well. But the, the thing you really want to compare it to, because we have a lot of experiencing with it, is seasonal influenza. So seasonal influenza is about 0.1% or so. Now. If you look at pandemic influenza, look at 57 and 68, it went up to about one or so, a little bit less than one, a little bit more than one. And when you talk about the catastrophe of 1918, that was close to two. So right now, if we're at two, I, I believe, though I don't know for sure, Helen, that it's going to be multifold less than that. I think it likely is gonna be down to one or below one. I think, I don't know, but I don't know. I think it's gonna do that because if, if it's half of two, that's one. I think, you know, and I think that, and again, I'm, Nancy's going like this to me, be careful, you're gonna, you're gonna have to eat your words. I'm saying, I don't know, but I'm just saying, what would I, you know, what is my imagining it would be? If there are twice as many people who are sick, excuse me, who are infected, either asymptomatically or minimally symptomatic, then you bring it down to one. 
If you could bring it down to one or below, from a dynamic standpoint, it's very different from influenza, but it would be acting like a really bad influenza season, if it were that. A really bad one, not a mild one, but a really bad influenza. That's the possibility. Now, having said that, it could be multiple other versions of it. Right. So that's the reason why it's, you know, you could surmise what it's gonna be, but I don't know what it's gonna be. And that's the thing that drives all of us, is that we don't know because we haven't had prior experience with this particular infection. I just will add one thing. I'm not going to predict. <laughs> but, I'm not predicting. You're giving me <laughs> options. Yeah. You know? but, well, another thing that really you need to factor into your thinking is how quickly this rose to high rates of disease, high number of cases right. in Wuhan. And you can imagine that the healthcare sector in Wuhan <clears throat> was likely rapidly overwhelmed right. by the number of cases. It probably impacted people's willingness to seek medical care, it may have impacted the ability of the healthcare sector to provide optimal care for everybody. And so we also don't know how much of those deaths reflect the societal disruption that's happened to the unfortunate citizens of Wuhan, and whether again by giving ourselves more time, whether it will help us in the eventuality that we need to care for these patients. So I think we're going to have to leave it there. Please join me in thanking these people for giving you so much time. Anthony Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Ron Klain is the former White House Ebola Response Coordinator, and Nancy Massonier leads the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the CDC. Helen Branswell covers infectious disease and public health for Stat News. Their conversation was held by the Aspen Institute's Health, Medicine, and Society program on February 11th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Health, Medicine, and Society program team is Ruth Katz and Katia Wanzer. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.